Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Nallman. I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. In July 2020, as COVID-19 was raging around the world, a story appeared about a confrontation in a restaurant in Kansas. A man walked in and was not wearing a mask. He was promptly told by the owner, named Bob Palmgren, to put one on. The customer, described as a man in his 40s, sporting a Make America Great Again cap, revealed that he was carrying a gun and said that he was exempt from a statewide mask requirement. He offered to discuss the situation. According to news reports, Mr. Palmgren, who was a former Marine, told the customer that there would be no conversation, and he was also not intimidated by the customer's gun. Said Mr. Palmgren, coronavirus doesn't care if you have a gun or not. I said, now get the hell out of here. If you're the government, what would you do? Should individuals have the right to decide for themselves whether or not to wear a mask during the pandemic? Should they be free to opt out of receiving a COVID vaccine? Or should there be a one-size-fits-all policy, regardless of whether or not you agree with the rules? I'm Elliot Malamut, and you're listening to my new ethics podcast, What Would You Do? In this series, we'll be asking all of our listeners to think about what they would do in a given situation, and to join the contemporary ethical discussion. In today's episode, we will talk about masks and morality, and whether people should be forced to do things that they would rather not do if their fellow citizens feel endangered by them. The argument in the Kansas restaurant reflects a huge split over mask wearing, and on a deeper level, what is the place of individual liberty in a democratic society? Most of us are in favor of freedom, as long as your actions do not hurt someone else, but as Hamlet would say, there's the rub. Does your refusal to wear a mask affect me? And does the government have the right, or even the obligation, to make sure I wear a mask, and to exact some penalty from me if I don't? Should mask wearing, in other words, be considered not just a private choice, but a mandatory public policy? Often, non-mask wearers, and this goes for anti-vaxxers as well, will conceal their own preferences by claiming that masks are ineffective and the vaccines are harmful. But at the root of the matter is an all-out battle to defend what they see as their inalienable liberties. For them, freedom supersedes everything. You might think that basic regard for public safety would be a no-brainer and hardly something which should be explicitly praised. But in today's world, just doing the ordinarily right thing is apparently a cause for celebration. An incident which received relatively little North American coverage, but was a very big deal in Italy, took place in the winter of 2017-18. In a high school in the Piedmont region in Northwest Italy, one of the students unfortunately was undergoing cancer treatments and was significantly immunosuppressed. So, because of that, all of his classmates and teachers got the flu vaccine in order to protect the student and make sure that they did not transmit the flu to him. Ordinarily, high school students don't get a flu vaccine, so that is a nice gesture, one of solidarity to their friend. But not such a big deal, right? 
Well, it became a national story in the Italian media, and the students received glowing reviews in all the newspapers and on social media. Even the then Italian Minister of Health, Beatrice Lorenzen, publicly praised the class's behavior on social media and went to the school in person to thank the students. Minister Lorenzen wanted to draw attention to actions which she suggested should serve as a model for others. Do the students deserve their moment in the sun? Dr. Alberto Giubilini is a senior research fellow at Oxford University, part of a program that studies collective responsibility for infectious disease. He thinks that it is absurd that we would have to thank these students and believes that actually the attention this high school class received is part of the problem, not the solution. In his book, The Ethics of Vaccination, which was published prior to the pandemic, at the very beginning of 2019, Dr. Giubilini argues that, quote, in a world where people simply behave in a minimally ethical way, a case like the Italian high school class should not be seen as particularly praiseworthy. On the contrary, it's quite unnerving that we live in a world where such fulfillments of a basic moral obligation are praised and deemed so special as to be worthy of news coverage. First, being vaccinated is just the fulfillment of a basic moral obligation, and second, if individuals fail to fulfill this moral obligation, institutions have the moral responsibility to enforce coercive policies, to achieve certain public health and social goals. In other words, Dr. Giubilini thinks the government should force you to get a vaccination and, by extension, to wear a mask. And he says that if you want to talk about ethics, well, ethics is, among other things, whether or under what circumstances we should make choices that are not only in our self-interest, but are also even primarily in the interest of other people. And he says that, unfortunately, the world we currently live in is far from one of moral decency, at least when it comes to public health. Do you agree with Dr. Giubilini that the government should, in fact, coerce people into complying with certain policies like wearing a mask or getting a vaccination? Or that it is ethical to force people to do these things in the name of public health? That we require state intervention to get people to do the right thing? Quick fact-checked. Right now, there's no country in the West that forces you to get vaccinated. Now, there are consequences in certain ways for not getting vaccinated, which is not quite the same thing. For instance, in America, vaccination requirements are controlled by each state autonomously, but they'll differ as to which vaccines are mandatory. Also, there are exemptions available for medical reasons or religious or personal reasons. So in theory, all 50 states have a mandatory vaccination clause. Let's say for the MMR vaccine, mumps, measles, rubella. In theory, if you refuse to vaccinate your child, he or she could be blocked from attending school. In practice, there are a myriad of exemptions that vary from state to state. And in Canada, immunizations are not mandatory, but in provinces like Ontario and New Brunswick, you have to show proof of immunization in order for children and adolescents to attend school. But again, in these provinces, there are exceptions for medical or ideological reasons. Look, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone, but the whole system is a bit of a mess. Without any consistent principles or policies, it's obvious that democratic countries are sometimes resistant into forcing people to do certain things. So why are we so hesitant to coerce people into certain actions? I've been teaching ethics for over 25 years in high school and university. And when the talk turns to freedom and coercion, the modern philosopher who jumps to the top of the discussion is often John Stuart Mill, 
who lived in England in the 19th century and died in 1873. Mill was a bit of a genius, as his biographer Richard Reeds notes, by the age of six, young Mill had written a history of Rome. By seven, he was reading Plato and Greek. At eight, he soaked up Sophocles. By the way, at the age of 20, Mill suffered a nervous breakdown, so I guess genius takes its toll. Every day that we step out into modern life, we're kind of playing in Mill's ethical universe. And that's because Mill created one of the influential doctrines of contemporary freedom. It's known as the harm principle. And here's what that means. In his book On Liberty, which was published in 1859, Mill writes the following. The only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or emotional, is not a sufficient warrant. So let's just take that in for a minute. You'll note Mill's distinction between harming others and harming yourself. Do what you want as long as you don't hurt somebody else, but otherwise, leave me alone. I'm not bothering anyone. Mill goes on to say that a person cannot be forced to do something or refrain from doing something just because it'll be better for him to do so, because it'll be make him happier, because in the opinion of others, to do so would be wise or even right. That's pretty plain, I think. According to Mill, if you don't like how I live my life, that I drink too much or smoke too much, eat too much, look at porn 24 hours a day, you know what? It's my problem. It's my business. It's my fun, my body, my cost. It's my life. So it sounds like if Mill were to weigh in on mask wearing, he might say that the only determining factor is whether you're not wearing a mask will cause me harm. So maybe at that point, we just let the science weigh in. You want to die of COVID by doing nothing to protect yourself? Okay, that's your choice. But if I can prove that you're spreading the virus by not wearing a mask or vaccinating, then it becomes my business. And that was more or less the conclusion of a judge in Palm Beach County in response to a lawsuit filed by four Florida residents. The plaintiffs argued that the state of Florida's mask policy, which made it mandatory to wear a mask in public, quote, interferes with personal liberty and constitutional rights. Those rights would include freedom of speech, right to privacy, and what they called a constitutionally protected right to enjoy and defend life and liberty. So these four people went to court and said, we don't want to wear a mask and we don't want the government to make us. Well, on July 27th of last year, 2020, the court rejected the law scoot and they ruled that constitutional rights and the ideals of limited government don't allow citizens to shirk their social obligation to their fellow Americans or to society as a whole. And the court concluded the ruling with a very interesting phrase. They said, after all, we do not have a constitutional right to infect others. Hmm. We do not have a constitutional right to infect others. So freedom stops where infection begins. You have no right to harm me by transmitting the virus. You could see how committed and cautious mask wearers are so frustrated by their fellow citizens who don't wear a mask. You can see that frustration just blow up when they're confronted by an unmasked face in the grocery store, supermarket, the Walmart. You can see what they're thinking at that moment of shock and consternation. You can see the wheels churning. Don't those people see the risk involved? Don't they see how they're causing public harm? Maybe, 
The answer is no, they do not see. So if you're a mask wearer, you think, hey, like, how can't you see that? I think part of the issue here is that unfortunately, people often fail to recognize or take seriously a problem if they can't see the harm right away. For those people, there needs to be a noticeable impact or a ton of data proving that if you do a certain action, there will be an inevitable result. Let me give you two examples of what I mean. We're going to arrest you for drunk driving because the evidence is just so overwhelming that you're going to lose control of your car and potentially hurt someone. Another example, the Center for Disease Control in the United States has said officially that secondhand smoke causes lung cancer in adults who have never smoked. So non-smokers who are exposed to secondhand smoke at home or at work increase their risk of developing lung cancer by 20 to 30%. So you smoke around me and my chances of getting lung cancer go up almost a third, even if I've never stuck a cigarette between my lips in my entire life. So I need you to stop. Look, if you want to go off to a cave or the North Pole and smoke, no big deal. If you're doing it in a restaurant on an airplane, different story. I mean, I'm not sure why you'd go to the North Pole just to smoke, but that's for another time. Why can't we just easily apply Mill's idea to mask wearing? I'm not exactly sure, but perhaps because COVID-19 is relatively new and no one knows at any given moment if they are carrying the virus and could transmit it. So for certain people, it just doesn't register, it does not compute that by not masking, they could be carrying a loaded gun that could go off at any time. They wouldn't even see or agree with that analogy. So does that put us at a stalemate? Do I have to give you absolute proof at every moment of every day that you're definitely a COVID carrier? That you'll likely infect me if you shut a mask? Do I have to show you that in order to stop you? It's pretty unlikely that I'll be able to convince you. Back to John Stuart Mill. Any suggestions? At first, it would seem not. After all, Mill seemed to make it plain. You can never interfere with someone else's actions, no matter how stupid or harmful you think their choices are for their own well-being, unless those choices will harm somebody else. Maybe, just maybe, though, Mill has one more card for mask wearers to play. Because even Mill placed limits on liberty based, first of all, on whether you had accurate information regarding an act you were about to do. This is known as the crossing the unsafe bridge example. And here, Mill outlines how I might interfere with a grown person's choices. So let's say I see you crossing a bridge, but I've concluded the bridge is unsafe. It might collapse while you're crossing and I have no time to warn you of the danger. Mill says, I might grab you and forcibly get you off of the bridge without imposing on your freedom. Why? Mill answers this very simply. He says, liberty consists in doing what one desires, and he doesn't desire to fall into the river. You'd think. So if you don't have accurate and very likely life-saving information, I can actually infringe on your liberty because that's what you'd want me to do, right? You'd want me to stop you from crossing an unsafe bridge, unless you have suicidal tendencies. But Mill doesn't give you much rope here. Doesn't give you much carte blanche to interfere. You really have to be sure that the bridge is unsafe. You also have to be sure about, and you have to guess really, what's in the mind of the person crossing the bridge. Do they know the risks? Have they chosen to cross anyway? Maybe they're aware of just how precarious the situation is, and they don't care. Maybe they're a risk seeker, and as I said before, maybe they're toying with taking their own life. In those situations, you may have to let the person be. Unless, in Mill's words, he's a child 
or delirious, or in some state of excitement or absorption incompatible with the full use of the reflecting faculty. What Mill means is that they don't have the ability to judge matters properly, either because they're too young, young child, or mentally incapacitated in some way. But judging who's in their right minds, or just capable of making fully responsible decisions, that's a hornet's nest of subjectivity that's going to be hard to prove. For instance, one thing that I've known for a long time, because I've taught teenagers for many years, is that teenagers the world over often scorn as hypocritical and coercive what they see as kind of the arbitrary dividing lines that a given society's laws make with respect to, for instance, who's allowed to consume alcohol at what age, or rent a car, or enlist in the military. In many countries, you're old enough to die for your country in a war, but you're too young to have beer at the pub. In America, for example, it's 18 for the former and 21 for the latter. So you can die at 18, but you can't drink at 20. In England, you can enlist with parental consent at the age of 16, but such consent will not allow you to drink before the age of 18. These laws and the pushback against them reflect a core argument about decision-making and trust. Whether we have faith that young people are wise enough to make good judgments for themselves, or whether we have to, at least in the short run, decide for them what is in their best interest, even if it curbs or eliminates their freedom to choose in specific instances. And if you're an adolescent, you just cringe at that idea that you know what's better for me. So let's say we lower the official drinking age to 15. Do we trust that the adolescent brain will be mature enough to make wise choices when it comes to getting drunk and the behavior that might ensue from that state? As a society, we do not. And the truth is, the science shows we may have a good reason for being suspicious. But what about adults? Can we always trust them to make decisions that are not only in their best interest, but also that they'll try to protect the public good? In this case, the public's health? Put another way, aren't there times when adults act like children and should be treated as such? In July, around the same time that Bob Palmgren in Kansas was booting out a customer for not wearing a mask, the governor of South Dakota... Christy Nome was tweeting, quote, I've always taken COVID-19 very seriously, but South Dakota trusted our citizens to exercise their personal responsibility to keep themselves and loved ones safe. Let's leave aside the fact that South Dakota is an inanimate object, and so South Dakota didn't trust anyone, which is the governor's way without frankly admitting it, that she herself does not want to force the citizens of South Dakota to wear a mask, probably because she didn't want to incur the political heat that a coercive policy might bring her from South Dakotans. Fair enough. But the argument against Governor Nome is similar to teenagers asking for a beer. Can I trust you that the non-mask wearer won't put themselves and others at risk? Just like can I trust you that the adolescent won't have too many? Similarly, are non-mask wearers soberly mature assessors of the COVID situation? Or are they like an adolescent brain, incapable of wise judgments and putting others at risk? For adolescents, I wouldn't say they're incapable, and I wouldn't say that about non-mask wearers. But there is a question that hangs in the air. And when it comes to South Dakotans, at least, the news was not good. As of March 9th, 2021, the state ranked 8th in deaths per 100,000 among U.S. states, and 2nd in actual cases per capita. So should we force people to wear masks? 
I don't think you can force most people to do anything. But what you can do, as we saw with the case of refusing school entry to non-vaccinated children, is to create consequences for non-compliance. As a store or restaurant owner or a flight attendant on an airplane, I could say to the holdouts on mask wearing, listen, you have every right to express your freedom, but I have every right to protect my other customers. This is private property, we have rules, and if you can't abide by them, then go elsewhere. And the public space is a shared space, so it would seem that we have to figure out a way to take care of everybody, and certainly our most vulnerable citizens. Why should I stay at home? Because you want to go to the restaurant without a mask. Why should I be stuck in an airplane with you if you refuse to wear a mask? Do your rights take precedence over mine? I don't believe so. And should I make it my business to interfere with your non-mask wearing? Should I go up to the store owner or the airplane staff and say, look, you know that man in row 22D? He's unmasked and I'm in the middle seat next to him and I am frightened. But does that make me that word that has a terrible reputation, a snitch or an informer? Perhaps it does. But is that always a bad thing? The great Jewish thinker Maimonides, writing in the 12th century, said that if one person is able to save another and doesn't save him, he transgresses a biblical commandment, do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. So passivity is not an option. And standing idly by is not a virtue if you feel it's a serious matter of safety. Of course, you can use your own discretion, and it seems that the best option would be just to try to politely engage the person and ask kindly if they could wear a mask, at least in the time they're around you. But if it ultimately comes down to a choice, I am not sure why the other person's belligerent refusal to wear a mask makes me the bad person if I point it out to someone in authority. Because your value system privileges your desire to do whatever you want, whenever you want, I should suffer for it? I don't think so. I want to tell you something that happened to me quite a while ago, and which I've thought about ever since. When I was in graduate school in Toronto in the 1980s, finishing my doctorate in English literature, I became friendly with a classmate who I will call Lucas. He was a very charismatic individual who was openly gay, with no committed partner as far as I could tell, but quite a number of lovers for him to tell it. For many younger listeners, you will not recall that this was a time of another pandemic, that of AIDS. And Lucas came to school one day and he told me that he was HIV positive. And after I consoled him, I asked if he had told his partner or any number of partners. He said, no. I asked if he was going to tell them. He said he didn't think so. Was Lucas going to continue having unprotected sex? He thought he might. I felt desperate to try to convince him otherwise. And I also felt like I should warn his lovers, whoever they were. The only problem was I had no clue who they were. I don't remember exactly when, maybe a year or two later, tragically, Lucas died. I've always wondered whether he told his partners about his condition, and I also felt like somehow I should not have stood idly by, though at that time, I felt there was little or nothing I could do. What would you have done? I want to thank you for joining me today. Each month, we'll go on another ethical journey as we navigate some of the crucial moral questions of our time. I would love to hear from you with your questions and comments. You can either leave a comment on our website, www.livingjewishly.org, or you can email me at Elliot, that's two L's and two T's, Elliot at livingjewishly.org. I'm Elliot Malamut. Stay safe and take really good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. 
It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.